thank you so much uh, for that beautiful, beautiful congregational prayer. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32, and then over into the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Let me get my finger there. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll start reading in verse 22 of chapter 32 of Genesis. The same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said to him, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, well, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, well, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. But Jacob asked, well, please tell me your name. And he said, well, why is it that you ask me your name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of David's hip, Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Then back over at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, where's my verse? There we go, verse 20, verse 21 of chapter 11, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A Christian friend of mine from a previous church I served in said recently, to find a scripture that makes you uncomfortable. Read it, then read it again, find out why you don't like it, and start repenting. Do this every day. And Genesis 32 is as good a place to start as any. There are several places in this text that make us very uncomfortable And I'm going to highlight one that you probably didn't even know about today. So it's going to make even more uncomfortable before I'm done. Now, as we listen to the news each day, mostly what we hear is anger baiting. We hear a lot of news that is designed to make us mad. We are told over and over again about bad people who've done terrible things to lots of other people and it looks like they're going to get away with it. 
And then they'll give you one little way maybe that you can help by donating money to this organization or by supporting this political candidate or one thing or the other. They give you one way or the other to work out your rage. And I got to admit, it, it does get to me. That, that's the kind of stuff that does bother me when I see people getting away with things over and over and over again and not ever getting what they deserve. But of course, the daily news is not the first place to do this. Have you read the Old Testament? The patriarchs, the people who end up in the hall of faith here in the book of Hebrews, so many of them lived lives where you were expecting at any moment a trap door to open up under them and then fall in a pit and then lightning start striking in the pit. These were really irritatingly bad people. And all along, God keeps blessing them. They repent. God blesses them. And then they end up in the hall of faith of all places. It doesn't even make sense with some folks, particularly not with Jacob. He plotted and schemed from the time he was born, plotted and schemed with his mother to steal the birthright, cheats his father, exploits his brother's hunger and short-sightedness, tricks his father-in-law, Laban, is unkind to at least one of his wives, plural. But like the song that Johnny Cash made famous, when a man comes around, Genesis 32, the man comes around. God says, I'm not dealing with this any longer from you, Jacob. It's time that you learned who's in charge here. And God does a magnificent defeat of this trickster that turns into great blessing for him, great blessing for all of his descendants. The bottom line for us today is that God is going to humble you and me. He is going to strip us, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, of the pride that keeps us from depending on God and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's going to do it. And today, we're going to see a worst-case scenario for how when God puts his foot down and says, it's time you changed. This is going to be a warning to not presume that God just won't ever do anything. And I'll be able to live a proud life and nobody's going to do anything to stop it. Because today's passage says God will do something to stop it. Now maybe it seems ironic that I'd be preaching a message like this. Some of you who know me well, you know that I am not altogether free of the sin of pride. That was your time to say amen, babe. <laughs> that was your time. 
But God is at work in prideful and through Christians that still struggle with pride. And that's obvious, not from my life as much as it is from the Apostle Paul. Think about this. In, in A.D. 59, Paul reports, he writes, that I am among the least of the apostles. All right? Four years later, in A.D. 63, he writes, I am the least amongst the saints. In A.D. 64, he writes, I am the greatest of all sinners. This is a man whose view of himself was being adjusted little by little by little. Now, was this where he saw himself as smaller and smaller and smaller? Did he actually think he was getting worse and worse and worse? No. He was becoming more and more godly. He knew that. He knew he was growing in grace. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that as he got closer to Jesus, as he saw himself more in light of the triune God and his glory and his beauty, he automatically saw himself differently. He wasn't making himself small in some sort of false humility sort of a way. But he was seeing God big. He was seeing God more and more for who he was. And that made him less and less fascinated by the sound of his own voice. Less and less interested in what other people thought about him. Less and less interested in even what he thought about him. Oh Lord, accomplish that today. Let's look back at our text now in Genesis 32, starting around verse 22. On this same night he arose and he, he took his wives and his children and crossed the river. He took them and he was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. The first thing we see here in the text is very similar to Abraham's story in Genesis 12 through 17. We see a reversal of the created order. Think about Genesis 1 and 2 with me for just a second. In Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. But what is there in Genesis 32? Dark. It's dark. In Genesis 1... It says that man was given dominion over all the animals. And yet here, Jacob's animals, they're all gone. He has dominion over nothing. It's not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2 says. But Jacob is alone in this text. Part of his family hiding across the river. Was he actually hoping that Esau would go and attack them instead of him? Was that actually the play there? Was that how wicked he was? I'm not sure. But half his family is hiding apart from him on the other side of the river. The other half, Esau, is trying to find him and kill him. He's alone. And it's a replay of Cain 
and Abel once again. In Genesis 2, God comes and walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. In Genesis 32, God comes and beats and assaults and attacks and throws into the dirt and kicks him. That's what God does in the cool of the evening to Jacob. This is the great unmaking of Jacob. Adam was made from the dust of the ground, was given a name and a purpose. Jacob was unmade. His name was taken from him. And all the plans and schemes that Jacob had for how things were going to turn out in his life were dust on that night. So, God did this to him. Was God just mad at him about his pride? Was that it? Well, I think it was more than that. It has to do with his misuse of his gift that he had been given by God. This thing that he had traded for over the porridge, this thing that he had deceived his father over and that his mom wanted for him so much that she had deceived her own husband, it was a thing. It wasn't nothing. As Adam is given marching orders in Genesis 1 and 2, he's also given supernatural powers to carry out that mission. Take dominion over creation. Give names and, and train up and domesticate all the animals. Be able to raise crops and, and everything and the, the earth won't even fight against you. They'll just leap out of the ground and everything will be ripe and beautiful and tasty. The peas will practically shell themselves for you. This is what Adam experienced and this is what was passed on. This mission and this supernatural ability was passed on through the line of Seth, then to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And what does Jacob do with it? Absolutely nothing. He relies on his own wits, his own guile, his own scheming, his own tricks. When it comes time, the perfect time to trust the Lord is in the situation with Laban. Where Laban says, here, we've got these livestock and I'll give you all the speckled ones. And, and they come up with this, this little game. It would have been great and a fulfillment of his covenant rights and blessing for him to have said, come here, Laban, let's just pray. Put his hands on his shoulders and said, Dear Father, I pray that you would bring fruitfulness to both Laban's livestock and my own in fulfillment of the promises you gave to Abraham, my father, that you would bless those who bless me, curse those who curse your people, and today give great blessings to Laban and to your servant Jacob in Jesus' name. Well, not Jesus' name, but <laughs> I'm in. 
He could have prayed that prayer and there would have been more sheep, more goats jumping all over the place than anybody would have known what to do with. Instead, he starts messing with his folk magic. He starts stripping the bark off of certain things and turning certain sticks certain ways and laying certain sticks down in the feeding troughs of Laban's to poison his livestock, whatever he was doing there. He's using local folklore, local folk magic to try to accomplish this work of getting the maximum production from his flock. When God saw that, God knew, I've got to put a stop to this because Jacob was endangering God's whole plan. God's whole mission was endangered at that moment when Jacob, instead of using the great gift that God had given the, the covenant leader of God's whole kingdom on earth. Instead, he was messing with sticks and peeling them and turning. At that point, somebody was in trouble. Somebody had to be corrected. Someone had to be taken to the woodshed or else God's whole plan was about to go wobbly. I think that's the reason why Jacob gets treated so roughly here as well as his pride and his arrogance and his scheming. And in Genesis 32, God puts a stop to it in a way that certainly everyone in this room can understand, but men, I believe, can more viscerally understand what's going on here. Verse 25, And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was part of a joint as he wrestled him. The word hip here is yerek. It is not the fleshy part of our leg like thigh. You'll see thigh in some translations. It can mean thigh. It can mean hip. But six times, all six times that it occurs afterwards with Jacob, it is in reference to loins like loins. Do I have to explain it to you? Because the Bible doesn't come out and explain it because it's trying to be delicate about the matter somewhat. But God punched Jacob so hard that the man walked with a limp for the rest of his life. I don't know how hard you have to get hit there to walk with a limp for the rest of your life. But it happened right here in the text. And the Bible talks slightly around it. But the way that Yarek, uh, Yarek is used throughout Genesis, always referencing Jacob's loins, it's unmistakable what happened here. That's what happens when you make a mockery of God's covenant blessings. God will strike you where is the worst place to strike you. That's how God feels when his people, and Jacob was God's people, make no mistake. That's how God feels when we ignore God's gifts, when we ignore the gift of the Holy Spirit, when we ignore the gift of salvation, when we ignore the gift of community that he gives us with his people in the church. 
and instead use our own wits and our own guile to make our way through life and through the difficulties and dangers that we face. The last thing that God wants us to do is try to trick our way out of it. When we do that, and when we teach others around us to do that, when we teach our church and our children to do that, it endangers everything God is trying to do in the church in order to build dependence on Him from His church and for us to proclaim and live like Jesus is Lord of our lives. If every opportunity that I come to where the going gets tough, I immediately, instead of moving toward, well, what does the Bible say about this? And what, how can I apply God's word and principle to this situation so that I can live obediently and walk obediently with Him through this? If instead of that, if instead of that our first reaction is, well, i got to go to Google to check this out. Or I've got to figure out by my own wits how to figure this out. How to talk my way out of it. If you're a talker like I am, I try to talk my way out of problems. Other people, they're very handsome and attractive. And they'll, they'll bat their eyes and, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And they'll find out a way to get out of the situation through that. We all have our strengths. We all have our abilities that God has given us that enables us to worm our way out of situations. God's Word says don't do that. God's very serious about putting a stop to this, not only in Genesis 32, but today as well. Going on, verse 26, they have a discussion. He says, let me go for the day is broken, says the man. Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. He says, what's your name? He tells him his name is Jacob. He says, nope, your name's not Jacob. It's going to be Israel. For you have wrestled with God. You've striven with God and, you've won, and with men and you've won. You've prevailed. And Jacob said, well, now you, now you tell me your name. No, you're not, you're not getting my name, says the man. And he blesses him. And Jacob says, for I've seen God face to face here. And yet my life has been delivered. As in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17 with Abraham, God reaffirms his covenant here with Jacob. Changes his name, Abram to Abraham, just like he did with Abram. And in Jacob's own words, verse 30, this is where his life was saved. This is where he was redeemed. This is where he realized that his God was big and he was small. And that forevermore, he was going to have to rely on God to even walk. So church... We can be renamed in 2024. You can be the new Israel, as we are called in the New Testament, or you can be the old Jacob. 
We can continue living our lives based on pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, self-reliance, bag of tricks. We can go and be and do that in 2024, as many of us did in 2023. But the trade-off is you'll still be running from Esau's. You'll still be scared. You'll still be afraid of losing everything. And you'll still be willing to sacrifice your family, your wife and your children and all of your possessions because of that kind of fear that will drive you to do crazy things that you never should have done. Or you can do something different. Now that difference, this wrestling with God that the new Israel is called to do, that the church is called to do, we talk about this in slightly different language in the New Testament. We say Jesus is Lord and that we're to submit to his lordship. But that's become a very passive thing in our culture. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have accepted Him as my Lord and Savior. All well and good. I'm not entirely negative about that language. I would ask you this question. Have you and God wrestled and has He won? I mean, have you laid down all of your objections, your anger, your frustration, your doubts? Have you told God about all the mistakes that you think He made in your life and in the lives of those around you? Have you talked to Him about the cruelties that you've witnessed on this earth that frankly you hold Him responsible for? Have you told him you don't want to read your Bible through in 2024? And you would prefer to not pray every day in 2024? What would it look like for you to honestly go into the dirt with God and say, you're going to have to prove it to me, Lord. You're going to have to show me I'm wrong. You're going to have to demonstrate your power and conquer this part of me that still wants to fight you. That still wants to hate you, even though I love you. Yes, if I did a, a quick survey, everyone here would say they're saved and, and that they believe in Jesus. But have you fought God and has He won? And have you gone back to Him when you discovered new areas of rebellion and said, God, we're going to have to have it out again. And I need you to rise up and win again. 
I need Jesus to show himself as a conquering Lord in this area of my life that I have discovered that is raging in rebellion against you. And I just haven't been willing to admit it. You say, well, Robert, that may preach just fine, but I don't understand how that's going to work. Like, that sounds more like getting mad at God and turning against Him and being a carnal Christian somehow. That doesn't sound like what a good Presbyterian should do. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 21, which we read before. Hebrews eleven twenty one. If I showed you that the result of wrestling with God and submitting to His Lordship on a new level, on a level that doesn't act like, look like, or feel like a blessing, that feels more like being cursed. If I showed you the results of that, and that they were amazing. Would that help? Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. The first thing you see here is he had faith. Faith in God, not faith in himself. Faith in God. Because he had encountered God. A God that he had both lost and won at the same time. That's how you know you've encountered God. Is you lose and you win at the exact same time. And sometimes you can't even tell the difference. Number two, you see action. That when he was old and dying, he took action and he blessed Because now he could be a blessing to all. He wasn't trying to trick everyone, steal from everyone, hide from the bad people, get the good wife, ignore the bad one. Nope. He was taking the kind of action to bless. And even to bless Joseph's half-Egyptian sons. He even had a new vision for the covenant blessings of God to go to people who an argument could be made didn't deserve them. But he was more than happy to give away the covenant blessings that he had lied and cheated and scratched for. Now he was giving it away to people who may not have even deserved it in some calculations. This is a man who had tasted of some grace. Who now had been set free by God to graciously give away what was his. Look at what else he was doing. He bowed in worship. Because Now he has a new identity. And he knows who God is now. And anyone who knows who God is will worship him. 
It may look different across the body of Christ. It looks different in the Vineyard Church down the road, and the Baptist Church up the road. But anybody who knows God, who gets a, just a, a glimmer, just a glimpse of who He is, will be moved to worship Him. He doesn't have to create his own luck anymore with Jacob's striped livestock or split his family in half and hope he survives. On the ground that night in Genesis 32, the gambler died and a worshiper was born. And finally he learned dependence. That's what awaits everyone who wrestles and loses slash wins with God is dependence. He leaned upon his staff. The wound that God gave him on night, that night wasn't something you just get over after some PT. Nothing was going to help him get over that. It was on that night that he wrestled with God and learned dependence. Those touched by God in this way are not hindered from ministry, hindered from going where God needs them to go. We are finally enabled and empowered to go and to lead. Lead with a limp, as Dan Allender wrote in an excellent book about this. Jacob, now named Israel, was ready to lead his family, ready to lead God's people, because like a wild horse, he had been broken and tamed and now was fit for use by God. He was dependent on a God that he worshipped, fully ready to be a gracious, blessing giver to the nations. And so today, how can you be a blessing in someone's life today? Really, you, you Robin, more of you. How can you be a blessing to someone today? That's what it means to live like the new Israel. Seeking out works of mercy on the Sabbath day. Finding ways to rise out of your football game or whatever it is and find a way to bless somebody. That's part of our new identity as the new Israel. Worship, we've already done that one. You can check that one off your list. Thank you, worship team. Great job. But also in 2024, why not once a week you just take some time out with God and worship Him on your own like a crazy person? Just by yourself, just with Him, singing, writing, praying, reading the Word, just, just giggling and laughing and enjoying yourself in His presence. That's what people who are broken, who have wrestled with God and lost slash won do, is they worship Him. And finally, we depend on Him. Paul Tripp has a prayer that he encourages 
everyone to pray that he prays every morning. He says when he wakes up and opens his eyes, I need your help, God. Please send me help. And please give me the humility to receive it when it comes my way. Repeat after me, church. God, I need help. God, send me help. God, give me the humility to accept it. You pray that prayer and you mean it. And you're going to be wrestling with God in 2024. And you're going to be the new Israel, not the old Jacob. Let us pray. You say in Psalm 18, 27, that you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Save your humbled people today, Father. Save them. Draw them to yourself. Rescue them from the soft flannel complacency that life in America can offer and draw us into the risk and danger and violence of those who would live under your kingdom rule. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.